should someone have to have a government-issued license to drive a car? Hell no! What's next? Requiring a license to make toast in your own damn toaster? The license to drive? You know, I'd like to see some competency exhibited by people before they drive. Yeah! Um, cannot have that. Uh, if, if the government is saying I, I need to know how to drive and be able to prove that I know how to drive, uh, you know, be able to, uh, like, not be too reckless a driver on a road test, like, before before I can drive a car that could potentially kill people, then I don't know. I mean, you know, it seems like we might as well be living in, uh, in Stalin's Russia. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see a difference. I mean, that is the road to serfdom. That's... <laughs> That's, that's the first stop on the road. Well, it's the road to serfdom. That's the road to serfdom because you can't even drive on the road, you know, without a government license. I mean, my God. And, and you can't even drive till you have your government issued toast. <laughs> so uh, later in the show at 830, uh, we're going to get Larry Sharp on uh, to uh, give me an argument uh, for, uh, for libertarianism. Uh, Larry was the libertarian uh, candidate for governor of New York in uh, 2018. Uh, I believe he was also a uh, unsuccessful candidate for the libertarian uh, presidential nomination in uh, 2020. He, he did get the nomination for governor, although he did not win. Larry Sharp is not the governor of New York right now, to be clear. Um, but... Um, uh, but uh, but he's going to come on at 8.30 and we're going to argue about libertarianism and socialism and uh, all of that good stuff. I do want to ask him uh, where he uh, he would position uh, himself. You know, that clip is from 2016, so he's, he's not one of those people. But uh, had he been on that stage, I am very curious about his answer, so maybe we'll start with that. Um, meanwhile, though, not only do I want to uh, bring down the, the steel boot of oppression on people who uh, don't know how to drive but would still like to drive um, with, without having to, to show that they can do so in a safe way. Uh, I, I also want to bring it down on private beach owners. So uh, this is a uh, article that I had uh, last week in uh, Jacobin. Uh, it's entitled Ban Private Beaches. And it's pretty self-explanatory since uh, this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, this, this summer, since I have um, been in Michigan, which uh, I haven't really lived in year round, except for right now during the pandemic and, you know, and after uh, for many, many years, you know, like since, uh, since my, I don't know, mid twenties. Uh, but, um, but, you know, I always love coming back here, uh, because, you know, it gives me a chance to, uh, see old friends and, you know, have, uh, have good Michigan beer and, uh, and also, uh, go, go to the lake, uh, which is, which is awesome. I love, uh, I love going swimming at the lake. Uh, and, it's increasingly bothered me because like the one of the lakes around here that, you know, the one that I usually go to, there are many lakes around here, but you know, the one I usually go to since you can actually go there without paying for, uh, for parking. So essentially being charged admission, if you don't live in walking distance, uh, is, uh, was, uh, closed because of the coli outbreak, you know, very rainy summer. Um, and then I was looking around and I was like, okay, here's like a top 10 list of, you know, of beaches, Around here, but it's, it's very hard to find another one uh, that you can go to completely free of charge. And you know, at this point in my life, whatever I could pay for 
um, you know, for like an annual parking pass, you know, at a public beach in Lansing without breaking the bank. But even just a few years ago, certainly I know in my case as a, you know, as an adjunct at Rutgers at that time, uh, that would have been a big problem because, you know, Jen and I were, were definitely in the um, spending a lot of time standing in the aisle at Walmart comparing cans of beans to see which one was 10 cents cheaper uh, and counting off days until the next paycheck mode. And of course, many, many millions of people uh, have a precarious gig economy or just like poverty wages kinds of jobs that are much less pleasant and comfortable than being an adjunct professor. Uh, and and so this 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 really bothers me. Like this seems very fundamentally unjust uh, in a way that I think you can, on a emotional human level, I think you don't have to be a convinced socialist to to be able to see that. Like it's one thing to say, okay, if money's tight, you might not be able to go to a movie or go out to eat for a little while. But it's like you can't even swim in the lake, which is theoretically owned by the public anyway. Um, which you know, since of course most states in Michigan. Um, the uh, the water itself is publicly owned, and the little strip of wet sand by the water is publicly owned up until the median high tide line. Uh, but the dry sand uh, is mostly private, uh, which is which does a lot of good if you want to get to the the, the you know the stuff that you and I uh, supposedly and everybody else supposedly own, uh, because you have to cross over private property uh, to uh, to to get to it. Uh, and oftentimes to find the one public beach, like in Houghton Lake, where I've spent a lot of time uh, this uh, this uh, this last year, um, the only public beach I know of in Houghton Lake, the entire downtown is like around the, the shore of the lake. And so you drive past about four miles of private businesses and expensive private homes, and you can see the lake peeking out from under them to uh, to get to the one lousy little be bit, bit of beachfront that's actually public. Um, and it's not a particularly desirable part of it. You know, I think it's about three feet deep. Uh, but, but this is pretty typical for, for a lot of places. And it's a, it's a minimalistic demand. I mean, this is not some wild eyed socialist thing with no precedent in the real world. Like Spain doesn't allow private beaches. I just don't understand why the plebs can't deal with their wet sand. Just go put your, put your chair in the wet sand your ass is going to be a little wet. Sorry, that's just like, you know, we can't control the tides, but uh, you can regulate your own schedule and figure out when to uh, to put your chair down. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah. so absurd. I I mean, I had I did after Ben published this, I did text him and say that I felt personally attacked by it, but just because I have the course of my life enjoyed a few stays out of some private beaches and i can tell you it tastes very sweet uh it just the the sand is different but um obviously i mean it's just like to me this is like such like a no-brainer and like it's really important i think to make this argument because uh you know i think the left unfortunately sometimes gets you know uh pinned down as like you know we're all about uh you know really you know hard mechanical uh you know uh uncompassionate, uh, unfun. We're all just like, we, we all just want to like turn everything into like a factory town, but we want to run it ourselves. And that's just so obviously not what we want. Like we focus on production because 
capitalism as an economic system focuses on production. And like, that's where most of like, you know, economic productivity of wealth is generated. And that's where uh, working people end up becoming situated within the system for the vast majority of their waking lives. But obviously, like, we want people to have full control over the the, the full gambit of, of what they do in their life, in their day, in their week, in their, uh, especially in their time off, of course, like the, you know, if we have to be stuck under capitalism, it freaking sucks that like when you're not in the workplace, uh, private property and bosses broadly still control how we have to end up living our lives. Like at the very least, you know, when we get the, you know, when we get time off, we should be able to, you know, have as much uh, leeway and and democratic uh, possibility to do whatever we want to do with our time. Um, and uh, if you live near a coastline, you should be able to go to the beach. Like, it's, I, I think, like it's it's Pretty basic. Yeah, it's like it's I don't know. It's it's something. It's more than just pleasure. It's like I don't know something like psychologically greatly like pleasurable and rewarding to be able to like be around like bodies of water. Like I don't, I'm getting a little hippie right now, but like, that's no, that's like, clearly true. In fact, there's, yeah. there's actually, there's even, uh, I mean, there, there is even evidence, you know, studies that, you know, that, that show that, but I mean, just on a common sense level, even without the studies, I mean, that's, that's just obviously true. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous uh, that, uh, that if you have enough money, uh, you can um, violently, by the way, if you want to play that game, you know, the usual libertarian thing, uh, exclude people from from being allowed to to enjoy it. Um, that's mm -hmm. that's obscene. Uh, now, I do have another uh, Jackman article that came out uh, yesterday, actually. Uh, so uh, before we, we yeah. before we move on, I have one more point I want to make about the beaches. Yep, yep. That's OK, yep. because um friend of the show, uh, Harvey K sent me, uh, after, after he had read the article, he sent me an episode from, uh, Michael Moore's TV nation where, uh, like his Michael Moore's people, it's not Mike himself, but he has, um, I believe it's one of his like pr producers, I guess. Um, she and a bunch of, uh, people that are just supposed to obviously look like urban working class people it's mostly like brown and black people are trying to get to the the private beach at greenwich in greenwich village uh or not sorry greenwich, in greenwich in connecticut um mm -hmm. and um and they can't just park there and then they end up storming the beach on a boat and it's like it's funny it's good tv um but like the obvious you know like again it's not maybe not obvious but like the thing is like we shouldn't the political prescription out of this isn't to like get mad at people who go to private beaches. This is a defense of me. Um, <laughs> like that, they're not the problem exactly. Yeah. Like, because they well, didn't set up. Are, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's not, yeah. By and large, they're not, I mean, they're, 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 they're beneficiaries of an injustice, but I mean, like the, uh, right. the point, you know, but the point is that what they're doing is what everybody should be able to do, right. which is to go to those beaches. Yeah. Uh, do you have something you want to add in? Oh, you're, you're Indeed. muted, right? I'm just like uh, digging the the whole flashback to uh, to TV Nation because uh, uh, yeah, back in high school, yeah, like like uh, we would have like pool parties on Friday nights, and, and uh, we would all stop what we're doing, go inside for half an hour, and watch uh, TV Nation. Yeah, I I am also old enough that I actually watched that when it was on. I do remember <laughs> that uh, 
although I also remember that the uh, that at least the local station in Lansing would like any excuse to like to to preempt that and like kick that off the game for like a you know preseason football game or something you know they they always seem to be suspiciously eager to do uh but the uh the other jackman article i wrote this week i think we're actually going to save uh for the post game uh because i want to make sure we have enough time uh to talk about something that actually uh just uh happened um i don't know earlier this evening uh, which, uh, you know, which is a little exchange and it's a small thing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Twitter exchange, but I think it's, I think it's interesting at least as a jumping off point for, for talking about, uh, more important things, uh, with a fellow named, uh, James, uh, James Lindsay, a uh, scourge of critical race theory or what he imagines critical race theory to be and Marxism or what he imagines Marxism to be. And also, uh, Axe enthusiast, uh, you can, you can find that online. Uh, James, James Lindsay uh, showing off his uh, his skills with his axe, but um, but yeah, do we have the original uh, Lindsay tweet? So uh, that this tweet says uh, critical race theory stages of history. Um, by the way, he claims to be a world expert, a world level expert on critical race theory, oh. which I guess means that the only people who get to um, push back are like galaxy level experts or universe level experts. That's why we're taking him on. If he was a world <laughs> expert, that would be a problem because uh, the only person who I know who's a world expert is my wife. So there you go. There you go. Good, so, good plug for Andy's wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So critical uh, race theory stages of history. One, primitive equity. Two, slavery. Three, segregation and apartheid. Four, colorblind equality. Five, racial equity. In parentheses, dictatorship of the anti-racists. Six, racial justice. So, of course, what he's doing here is uh, he's he's taking the the sort of schematic version of the Marxist you know theory of history. You know, you start out with primitive communism. You have like tribal societies that that don't have um, that haven't been divided into a class of producers and a ruling class. Uh, so that's you know primitive communism, and then you have um, and then you've got like you know, ancient Rome style, like ancient slave societies and feudalism and capitalism, and then eventually inshallah socialism. Uh, but uh, so, so he's, you know, the, the point of the, it's like kind of clever by the standards of what he's doing uh, is to, is to do what he always does, which is to say critical race theory is basically like Marxism. Uh, so, uh, so I, I, you know, happened to be on Twitter and see that. And so I, I responded to it. That's the second tweet uh, to say, this is basically an update date of Jordan Peterson's Marxism equals postmodernism equals censorious blue haired college kids thesis with a little bit more effort put into explaining it, which actually makes it even goofier. So, you know, <laughs> straightforward. Um, and then, um, and then he, uh, he, he quote tweeted that. So that's the third one says, I just realized that they mad, uh, not they are mad, by the way, they mad. Oh, they big uh, mad. <laughs> they mad about that tweet. Of course they are. Lol, target symbol, uh, to to which I, I finally replied, and I have oddly not gotten an answer to this yet. I think it's, uh, I think it's a bullseye. He, he's implying he bullseyed us. Yes. Uh, so I, I reply, uh, they, in this case, meaning people who actually know what Marxism is and are thus know uh, how absurd it is to equate it with critical race theory, 
and to equate that in turn with every vaguely woke race-related things that bugs you. But more than happy to have an off-Twitter conversation about this with you, James. And oddly enough, despite his earlier participation in the interaction, he, he let that one go. Maybe he's mulling it. But, um, but I, I, I just wanted to say a few things about this because, um, you know, James Lindsay is one of the leading lights of the uh, movement to freak everybody out about critical race theory. Uh, on the uh, on the right, I guess Chris Rufo is maybe eclipsed him as the even bigger spokesman of that. But you know, but otherwise, it's pretty much Lindsay. Uh, and so this is something everybody on the right is is fixated on now, um, because this is their culture war obsession of the week that uh, they're trying to teach your kids critical race theory in uh, in high school, and God knows what that'll lead to, and. Um, and on the left, there are a few different ways that people have responded. Um, one of one of which, and this one is kind of fair, uh, is to is to say um, they're not really, you know, teaching critical race theory in in high schools. Uh, critical race theory is something that uh, really is mostly taught in law schools a little bit, you know, to undergrads because uh, it comes out of critical uh, legal studies. Uh, and, and, you know, from um, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, other figures kind of developing and out of, out of that tradition. Uh, and that's kind of true, although it is probably true that there's some, you know, anti-racist pedagogy uh, that, you know, that, that might, you know, make its way to high school here and there that, that, is, uh, that is influenced, you know, by CRT ideas. Uh, I, you know, and I, I wouldn't lean too hard on the no totally nothing that's ever taught in any high school you know, has anything in common with, you know, with what anything CRT theorists are saying. They're not teaching Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw in high school, but there might be some affinity with some stuff and the level of ideas. Uh, but then um, but then, oftentimes the way that people on the left will, will reply to it is by, by saying, um, no, this is uh, what they're just, what they're upset about is just... Um, history like u.s history classes teaching that like racism existed and was a big deal in american history or something like that even though obviously that's not a new development uh you know that as as we just established uh andy and i both went to high school in the neolithic period and uh and and you know it's not like they didn't like talk about the civil rights movement and stuff like that not in high school um Certainly, you know, certainly if you lived in the state that I did, you know, you had annual Martin Luther King Day assemblies and uh, and all of that stuff. Uh, but uh, but then um, but then I think there there are really two different issues that deserve to be separated here. Uh, maybe three, uh, which uh, to to run through them really quickly, you know, so we can talk about them before Larry comes on are one, the uh, the sort of heavy handed attempt at uh, legislative uh, censorship uh, directed at CRT, at what people vaguely imagine CRT is, uh, which even if the specific stuff that might be pissing them off isn't just acknowledging that racism exists in history class, um, that doesn't mean that broadly written laws in some of these states won't in fact make it more difficult to uh, to talk about racism in history class, because sometimes these it varies from state to state, but sometimes the language is vague, uh, and, and in any case, I mean, empowering censors always leads to tons of stupid censorship that might even be pretty distant from the original purpose. I mean, just, just look at, look at what, I mean, Andy had, uh, was it, uh, Facebook suspended him for, uh, for sharing 
a article written by a very mild-mannered fellow uh, who, was, who was on the show last week, uh, Nathan Robinson, which uh, which we can I think uh, I think we have the uh, the graphic of um, that that was bullying, you know, which is a small example of how empowering censors leads to like crazy censorship that has nothing to do with the. Uh, original alleged point uh, just routinely because you're you're empowering people to make these decisions. Oftentimes bureaucrats will err on the side of like a very broad interpretation. So I think the censorship is very bad and should be opposed, right? That's the first thing. But then the second thing is, okay, but how about critical race theory itself? The actual theory, like, is that good or bad uh, or a mixture? And a lot of people on the left have the impulse to sort of look the way culture wars work, you know, if the if the if the other team puts a plus on something, you put a minus. If they put a minus, you put a plus. So I think a lot of people get very defensive about anything that they see as being attacked by the right. And then the third related issue is uh, is how should how should we um, what should we make of this equation that Lindsay keeps on doing and Rufo keeps on doing between critical race theory and Marxism, because. Uh, because like short version of the hot take, uh, I think that um, that like Lindsay and Rufo are out of their minds on this subject. Uh, the two have very little to do with each other. And as such, being a Marxist, I am a bit critical of critical race theory uh, for Adolf Reedish sort of anti-essentialist reasons. And to, to understand how this works, like why uh, this is um, what that criticism looks like, I think it is good to have as a starting point Nathan's article because most people with strong opinions about this stuff, pro or con, don't really know, certainly on the level of academic theory or literature, what critical race theory is. And if you want to know what critical race theory is, I think Nathan's article is a great place to start. I think he, I think he lays a lot of it out very, very clearly, uh, and and has a lot of the virtues that I really appreciate in Nathan's writing. He's always very clear. Uh, he he's always very explicit about what his argument is. Uh, I remember Mikey Utrecht put it to me once that, you know, it's like so many people in the writing about something, the tone of it is, hey, I know all about this, so I'm going to generously let you in on it. Whereas with Nathan, the tone is often more like, um, hey, I'm figuring this stuff out, but I'm going to sort of like let you in on my thought process as I figure it out, you know, which, which I think is a really useful way to write about something like this. But reading... Um, but reading the the article, I think actually makes it a little clear both why Lindsay is a complete lunatic on this stuff, but also why, um, uh, but also also why I think there is like a good Marxist anti-essentialist critique to be made of some of these ideas. So basically, the core of what critical race theory is is it starts from an absolutely correct observation, which is that the achievement of formal legal equality between the races in the 1960s did not end racial disparities. Um, most obviously in, well, policing, incarceration, and, and really underlying that poverty, uh, that, that those were not ended by having formal legal equality of opportunity, that there's some other problem here. And if you're not going to go all bell curve on it, uh, or you're not going to have some kind of you know, goofy culturalist explanation about how people just need to pull their pants up or something, then uh, then that has to do with some sort of social structure. So far, so good, right? Nothing in any of what I just said is wrong. Uh, but I think to, to kind of see how, um, like why, contrary to what Lindsay is saying, uh, that there is going to be some divide between, um, between 
read style anti-essentialist Marxists and critical race theorists, I think a really good starting point is where where Nathan starts in the article. This this short story written by by Derek Bell, one of the uh, you know main founding fathers of critical race theory, called the Space Traders, uh, which is about some aliens who come to Earth and basically. Uh, decide that they they want to like re-enslave all the black people and that you know if, if the if the white people will will sell them all the black people to take away uh they they'll um they'll share i don't know alien technology or some sort of bounty with uh with earth and then there's a secret ballot and the white people vote to to sell to sell the black people to to the aliens that's the uh, that's the end of the story uh and the thing is, and so in Nathan's explanation, he said, um, well, his first reaction when he, when he had to read this in, in like law school was, eh, it's a little goofy. Uh, first of all, as, a, as literature, it feels like a short story written by a law professor. And then, uh, and then secondly, uh, although he certainly agrees with all the stuff I just laid out, it seems to sort of misrepresent like how racism really works now. It's a sort of unhelpful, uh, you know, exaggeration of it but then he said the more he thought about it the more he decided that the story um that the the lesson of the story was right after all think about all these racial disparities from policing to healthcare to wage levels to everything else in the ways that they uh result in you know many many black people dying earlier uh than uh than the average of of everybody uh and so isn't this essentially being willing to you know, trade black lives for, for other, you know, social benefits of keeping certain structures in place. And this at last gets us to the critical nub, which is, I think, a very simple way of seeing the point is, well, hold on. Uh, if we are metaphorically selling a lot of the black population to the, slave, the space traders, which sure, in a sense, we are, uh, we are also selling a pretty big chunk of the non-black population to the space traders. And we're not selling all the black population to space traders because, you know, prejudice might impact people. But as far as what Nathan's talking about, these disparities that, you know, that, that impact lives, um, you know, Barack Obama and, you know, Kanye West are not, uh, are not impacted by that, right? Oprah is not impacted by that. Um, whereas lots of, um, Lots of white people in the Rust Belt and the Appalachians and everywhere, right? But I mean, those those let's let those two stand in symbolically are impacted by it, and lots of people of other races are being sold to the space traders in this metaphor, because because the real thing is that the um, is that like it's it's not just saying here's this category called race that is this sort of primary explanatory thing misses like gets your eye off the actual ball, which is capitalism that of course we have these racial disparities it's dis the number of people being sold to the space traders are disproportionately black because uh the way that just regular capitalist property relations freeze in place uh the results of past legal apartheid uh up until the 1960s later in some ways uh so so of course you know you're that that's what accounts for that disparity but the basic thing is not the disparity the basic thing uh is that anybody is being sold to uh, to the space traders. Uh, that's 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 uh, that's a problem that uh, black people are disproportionately more likely than some of the groups to have. But it's a uh, it's a problem for everybody who's being sold to the space traders. And there's a solution for everybody, which is to see it as a common problem and to uh, and to have working class solidarity to um, 
I don't know, blow up the spaceship. At, at this point, I'm, uh, the metaphors slip in. But that would be that would be my critique of what CRT actually is. Right. Well, and part of it also is just you know because the vast majority of people who are not the you know not the Twitter intellectuals or um, the politicians, the vast majority of people, ordinary people who are thinking about critical race theory right now, like their principal objection to it is not, you know, it's not about uh, a legal interpretation or a, a Marxist, uh, um, uh, that it's not Marxist enough or something. Obviously, like the, obviously, like what most people take away from this is, oh, uh, professors are saying that we're all racist and and we're bad people and and so like the way it filters into the culture war is just you know it's another instantiation of like professional people bullying working people uh from like from the working class perspective on this and so i think the the left's uh argument against this is to say you know like one like we're not engaging in the culture war like it's not worth it when conservatives say you know, one thing that we should automatically switch and say the opposite. That's just so not true. Like it just, it's because then we're going to end up because the dominant alternative is, is typically, typically going to be liberalism. Um, and it's not going to be a sufficient answer for, for these problems. Um, uh, but like for most working people, like, you know, it's, I think it's fine to say like, yeah, you know, you're not like just un irredeemably racist. Like you're not like a horrible, terrible, bad person. Like most of you are probably like pretty good people who like have morals, who care about uh, other people, who care about their family and want good outcomes for others. Um, I mean, the the big kind of like insight that like the left has made when it comes to uh, ideologies of oppression uh, is is the fact that like ideologies have to have a material base and that since the civil rights movement where there you know uh uh jim crow and political segregation has been done away with um the reason why there are persistent inequities when it comes to race is economic like it, these are economic differences when it comes to healthcare, housing uh job markets um and uh and that's where you know yeah, it's even 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 policing. I mean, like it's it's right. certainly it's certainly not the case that like because the problem is when you have this sort of analysis that there's this some sort of oftentimes not really well defined category called called race um, that uh, presumably don't mean something biological. But then what do you mean? And they, they then I think um, like what people are really talking about are uh, what sometimes called P plus P, you know, prejudice plus plus power, which is big right. decision makers make decisions on the racial prejudice, which certainly does happen. That is part of the problem. I mean, like there are, you know, definitely like there's lots of statistical evidence you can look at, you know, in terms of decision making by police officers, for example, that supports that or other kinds of decision makers in other contexts. Uh, but that's not the main reason for the disparities in policing and incarceration. The main reason for the disparities in policing and incarceration, never mind the rest of this, uh, you know, is that um, this, that kind of aggressive militarized policing is primarily a problem in poor neighborhoods. And uh, black people are disproportionately likely to live in poor neighborhoods because of everything that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is like when, if people want to say, um, it became kind of fashionable for a while to say, you know, race is a social construct. And it's like, okay, if that's, if that's the term you want to use to describe race, fine. But 
the social and the social construct, the social is referring to society. It's referring to mostly predominantly economic categories. Like that's what that's. So like when, you know, when you say there's a racial disparity, it's like not that race has a life unto its own. It's that it's, it's a, uh, it points to other actual material factors because race is not a real thing. There's no such thing as like actual race in biological terms if it's like socially constructed, it's it's because it's like pointing to geography, it's pointing to phenotypes, it's pointing to economics. It's there's there is in fact no real divisions among human beings, and so uh, like the left's project has to be you know uh, the the you know just wiping away of like these massive inequities. Not that everyone's going to end up in like perfectly you know everyone gets exactly the same amount of income or something but like there shouldn't be as like at the level of categories of people there should not be inequities uh but and that's also going to mean down the line like you know we we want to move as far away as we can from a racial worldview where we we arbitrarily categorize people uh into these you know well you're um you're white because xyz you're black because xyz that we see uh you know, pigment as, as the, the predominant means of categorizing people. Um, yeah, I mean, or, or, or some weird combination of ancestry and like, I'm not sure exactly what, like I've, I've, I've seen people like leftists having like discussions about whether like Jewish people or like Ashkenazi Jewish people are objectively white or not. It's like, man, this, this sounds like a discussion the far right would be having, right? Like, because yeah. like, because the obvious the obvious answer is <laughs> is no, because nobody is, because there's no such thing. But uh, we need to bring in uh, Larry. But Andy, uh, uh, do you uh, do you have a uh, last thought about this? Uh, not really. Uh, it, it just uh, just to clear it up, I, I called the person a coward for not reading the article. Uh, it wasn't for posting the article. <laughs> that was that was the um, I think. Uh, yeah, it was like it's like man up and read the article, you coward, because uh, your 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 ideals, uh, your ideology is so fragile. A simple little article is going to make you cry, uh, something like that. Wow! All right, that is that. Is yeah, some, I was being mean. <laughs> that, that is some pretty intense bullying. I okay. guess Facebook was right. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's 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 awful. I can't believe you did that. All right, yeah. uh, okay. I guess I'm fired. Bye, everybody. All right, All right. see Andy. Uh, no, but we should uh, we should bring on uh, Larry Sharp. Uh, so uh, Larry uh, was uh, the uh, the Libertarian candidate uh, for uh, governor of New York in the 2018 election. Is that right? That's correct. All right, uh, and also a candidate for the Libertarian nomination in 2020. No, no, no. Uh, 2016 no. for the oh, 2016, 2016 yeah. nomination. Okay. Yeah, uh, I was uh, beaten by Bill Weld by. Uh, 32 votes. Not that I'm counting. Stop counting, Ben. I'm not counting. 32 votes. I'm not counting. You're okay. counting. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Uh, before we get into it, is there anything else you want to say by way of introducing yourself? Nah, it's fine. If anyone cares, Google Larry Sharp. I'm everywhere. If you care, Google. <laughs> I, I hope I impress your audience enough to where they care and they Google Larry Sharp. That'd be amazing. Please do so if you care. Fair enough. Uh, so, okay. So 2016. So that that's that actually sets this up perfectly. Uh, since there was this uh, famous clip uh, from uh, from the 2016 uh, Libertarian Convention that I think uh, must the version of the clip I saw must have cut off before it got to your answer, uh, but but now I am I am very curious is it um, is it oppressive? You mean the clip when it was for the the presidency the presidency? Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I wasn't. I was a nominee for the vice president. Oh, okay. You were okay, right? So for yes, the, so I was not part of that debate. Nomination. Yes, okay. That de that debate was a farce. I can't believe they let Larry Elder do that. Oh, it was terrible. So um, but, yeah. Uh, so what? Uh, uh, so if you had been there, like like like, what would have your been your? Position I did debate. For? If you want to watch my debate, you can go if you want to. It's Larry Sharp, the vice president debate. I debated uh, Bill Weld. And uh, three others who were all, two others who were also running for the VP at that point. It was a uh, we were very diverse. It was me, um, a Muslim, a woman, and Bill Weld. So yeah, we were actually diverse. It was it was a good it was a good time there. So yeah, one thing I want to bring up. Um, I think we agree on certain things. I know a lot of people in your world take a lot of uh, massive dumps on us libertarians. I know that's true, um, but I still love you guys. Doesn't matter. I think we agree on. Ending embargoes, I think we are exactly in the, you know, with each, with each other agreeing with ending embargoes. I think we agree on culture war being nothing but a distraction, just bad in general, right? I mean, I think culture wars are terrible. They're not helping us at all. Um, and I think the ownership mindset is a wonderful thing. I think you and I disagree kind of on how ownership should work. But I think we both agree that ownership is a way out of poverty. It's a way uh, out, out of a, a bad mindset. It's a way to move people forward. So I think we can start on something positive, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are, uh, I would imagine that, uh, I would imagine that there are a lot of, you know, that that certainly anti-war stuff, uh, certainly, mm -hmm. um, you know, opposition to to the drone war, to surveillance, uh, sure. to, to, to the drug war. Uh, I'd imagine you probably want to abolish ICE. Um so, so, so all of all of that stuff is is going to be uh, areas of agreement, which which is definitely worth worth noting. You know, before we get into the areas of disagreement. But what I was going to ask is, uh, if you had been asked the driver's license question, what would you have said? Why do we care about driver's licenses? What I would have said: This is a national election; it's a state issue. Let the states handle it. What's the what's the problem? What, okay, what, well, what, well, you, well, you for, go for governor of New York. Do you think that uh, New York should be licensing drivers? Why not? Why do I care about that? This is these kind of questions are insane. I don't care about driver's license at all. You know what I do care about in New York State? In New York State right now, if you get a certain number of DUIs, I think three and maybe four even, you lose your license in perpetuity forever, no matter what. And it's retroactive. So the state now takes away your driver's license forever. So to be forward, if you if you get three DUIs, You've never hurt anybody, so you you don't you didn't actually commit a crime in that regard. But DUI is a crime, and I, it should be a crime. I'm okay with that. But mm -hmm. the idea is now it's five years later or ten years later, and you've actually cleaned your life up. You haven't had a drunk. You you, you know you haven't done anything. You've passed all your tests. You've done everything as you you've actually taken the loss of your driver's license as a way of squaring your life away, and now you do that, and New York State will still not give you a license. And not just that, there's there's actually all the states recognize that. So you can't drive in, in the country ever again. They've taken away your livelihood in the case of when you've made yourself better. I'm not against them hammering you if you take get three DUIs. What I'm against is the state not giving you a second chance when you've shown that you've done what they want you to. Because they make you go through a series of, oh, do your tests, do this, go to your things over the course of years. They don't give it back. That's the second reason why I'm unhappy. If we're going to talk about driver's licenses in family yeah. court, the family court right now, if you have trouble paying, it is almost only males, but women too, but almost only males. If you're a father and you don't pay your child support on time or you lose your job or whatever, 
they take your driver's license. So now how are you supposed to make money to go pay your child support? There's no second chance. I don't mind yeah, the state well, having driver's license. What I hate is the state using the driver's license to punish people in perpetuity, keep them poor, keep them down, and not give them a second chance at life. That I'm bothered Yeah. About. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I agree with all that. And I think that it's, it's uh, obviously I'd like a vastly less uh, punitive uh, criminal justice yes. system. I'm a Absolutely. big fan of giving people more second chances. That's all an area of agreement. But as uh, slightly goofy as it is, I think the – the reason that the driver's license question is important is because it gets because it's a it's a maybe vivid example of a larger question that's important, which is like what's the uh, the legitimate uh, role of the state uh, in uh, in promoting um, you know for you know safety like in 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 this case. Yeah. Uh, and so there are there are libertarians. Uh, well, I mean, on the one end, there's 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 Gary Johnson who was booed for saying that uh, he was okay. I love Gary Johnson. I'm a okay. big Gary Johnson. I came in because of Gary Johnson. I came in 2012 because of Gary Johnson. I'm a big Gary Johnson fan. Love Gary Johnson. Love him to death. Okay. All right. So, and and uh, and in the range of libertarian views going from like Johnson on one end uh, to uh, people on the other end who think that, um, you know, the driver's license thing should be mute, mute since all the roads should be privatized and the road owner just gets to decide, you know, who, uh, who drives on the road. So, so, so just okay, to try you, to you, hold on one second, you, you know, that I'm, I was a candidate, right? Not an activist. I mean, I, I know what I know about you is pretty much what I said at the beginning. So you tell me. Yeah. I'm a candidate, which means I have actual policies. I don't oh, yeah. think about theory and stuff. I don't talk about, we should destroy the state. I've never said any of that stuff. I'm a candidate in New York state. So I have actual policies that can function within New York state to make the state freer, to make people have better service, who support the poor and the, the working poor and the middle class without raising taxes and without using force. What makes me libertarian isn't the fact that I want to blow up the state or whatever the activist wants. That's not what makes me libertarian. What makes me libertarian is I actually want to support the working poor and middle class without force and without extra taxes. That's what I want. That is my goal. If I can do that, I'm winning. I believe in my heart that if you want the poor and working class to be better off, the best way of doing that is not to necessarily try to knock down the Goliaths or worse, to replace Goliaths which with, with the state, which is another Goliath, but instead to create many Davids, lots and lots of Davids that can either become Goliaths on their own or not Goliath down on their own. I have to create an environment in the society to make that happen. I do not see that okay, happening well, at all in the way we're working right now. Well, let's talk about uh, the uh, stuff that you'd object to as being too Goliathy a way of uh, of helping uh, of helping the uh, the working poor. I mean, so uh, so one, you know, for example, uh, there was a attempt uh, to uh, to create. A uh, public uh, health insurance plan uh, in uh, in New York at one point of time, the uh, the New York Health Act, uh, and I'm guessing that you would oppose that as being too Goliathy or no? Yeah, the the my worry about healthcare is I see what's happening right now, particularly in New York City, but throughout the country. Most of the best doctors in New York City, and I will always speak, I speak about the country, but I always focus on New York because I know it best. So mm -hmm. what I see happening in New York City is many of the best doctors are simply not taking insurance anymore. They're just not taking it. Like, nope, pay, pay by cash. That's all you're going to get, nothing else. 
And if you, if you have, we'll tell you, we'll give you a bill. You can hope your insurance reimburses, but that's it. So what's wound up happening is you're having two tiers of healthcare right now. You have the wealthy who go to people who don't take insurance and the poor who go to whoever will take insurance. That's what's happening now. And there's a massive difference in the service level you're going to get. And you've probably seen it if you, I don't know if you have that world where, do, do you, you live, where do you live by the way? I'm sorry. Uh, well, it's a little complicated. I'm about to move, but right the second Michigan. Okay. So, so you may not know New York city specifically, but if you do, that's how it's working right now. So if you go to a, a doctor's office now that, that takes insurance, generally speaking, your appointments at two, you get seen three fifteen. You wait in an hour and a half in a, in, in, a, in a room that people tend to not care about you much at all. They're more worried about photocopying your, your documents than you. And when the doctor does see you, it's 15 minutes and it always ends in one of three things. It ends in either a test, a procedure, or prescription. Always. Why? Because that's how a doctor gets paid. The incentive right now is for the doctor to make sure you're sick. It is equivalent of back in the day, the old computer fixing model, the break fix model. They'd only fix your computer once they broke and they'd hope your computers would break so they can keep charging you by the hour so they can fix your computers. So what did they do? They changed that model completely. Now, let me go instead now to the private model right now. If I'm wealthy and I just swipe my credit card or write a check, I go to a nice room that's really nice. Uh, my appointment's at two. Maybe it gets in at 2.05 at best. That's it, right? Then when I sit there, the, the doctor talks to me. The doctor asks me, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? What's your stress level? I have a nice long conversation. Why? Because he's doctor got paid already. Card got swiped or I gave him a check. The doctor's fine. That's how doctor gets paid. And wealthy people get that type of service. What I would like, instead of, instead of making a larger Medicare, Medicaid system, which is still the break-fix model, I would like to expand the rich people model so the poorer people get a better model. There are several examples of this now. One of them is the company well, well, Forward. Let's, let's, before, we, before we do the examples, I just, I just want well, to be ahead, clear on this because uh, you – because uh, you you did say two things that uh, that I certainly agree with you know that it's it's bad uh, that we have a, a you know multi tier uh, multi tier health yes. insurance system uh, you know and and care system that you know the quality of care that you know that you get uh, is uh, is different uh, based uh, based on on who you are uh, yep. and uh, and that the the you know profit incentives of the doctors uh, you know are are often bad and don't lead to ideal care all very true. Uh, but looking around uh, the uh, the world, uh, it's you know it seems to me uh, that you know a really excellent way of uh, of yeah. of dealing with uh, with both of these things would be for everybody uh, to uh, to have uh, to have one de- one tier of care uh, because uh, the uh, the state would be the uh, the single payer uh, for uh, for medical costs, uh, which is extremely popular uh, everywhere uh, that it's uh, that it's ever been implemented. Uh, and uh, and seems to you know certainly you know even in like Canada, uh, you know that's it doesn't include you know dental and you know and, and vision uh, like mm-hmm. it should, but uh, but it's but the uh, the basic you know basic healthcare Medicare for all model uh, is so popular that even Canadian conservatives have to pretend uh, that they support it uh, or they're not sure. going to uh, they're not going to win another election. Same thing with the NHS uh, in Britain. And it it seems very unrealistic to me that you're going to get a single tier of care for everybody, uh, you know. If bottom line, uh, you still uh, you still have doctors uh, who uh, who are being paid either by insurance or by individuals, uh, either of those things seem like they they would still lead to that. So how do we get around that? Sure. All right. 
are you, and this is a question I have, are, are you advocating for this is the only system, meaning that I, private insurance would be illegal and or paying for a doctor out of pocket would be illegal? Are you advocating for that? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. So I, I'm actually, I'd also also be curious about what you think about public option plans, but I think that you don't get, uh, if you have just a public option alongside private options, uh, you you don't get most of the benefits of, yep. uh, of, a, of a completely public system. You certainly yeah. don't get don't get I have an actual benefits. policy that will move us towards that. I do. Okay, let's do it. Um, there, are, there are two pieces. I, I'll tell you my policy and, and why I don't like what you advocate for. Um, my policy would be one that would move us towards this. This can't change overnight without violence or crazy upheaval. It wouldn't have get voted for. Everything is just, there's, there's no way it would happen in my state. It's in, what either one of us is asking for is just not going to happen. It's, it's without horrible, horrible disruption that will hurt just literally millions of people. I would like that to not be the case. Okay, okay, wait, 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 wait a second. So, so having, having Medicaid for all that uh, disrupted necessarily, that would, that would hurt millions of people? Yes, because to make that happen, um, the powers that be right now, particularly in my state, but in most states, are much against it. So they're going to do everything they can to stop it. That's what I'm saying. That the, the people right now who are in power are not going to accept this, which means they're going to do everything they can to stop it. And they are literally going to go out of their way to crush people because they make billions of dollars on this. So it's not going to happen is what I'm telling you. Now, maybe there I are mean, states right that could happen. I mean, maybe I mean, it can happen maybe, in Vermont maybe, or something. I mean, in New York right now, you, you have a majority... Uh, in both the assembly and the senate, uh, co-sponsoring uh, just that, you know, I mean, it's it's been held back by the democratic leadership, but that's a that's a political yes. struggle. That doesn't seem like it would be something that would have to, you know, I, you know, you'd have to steal rivers of blood or anything to uh, to no to, no no. To no. I'm sorry. The... Maybe okay. maybe maybe my words were were a little bit hyperbole. Maybe they okay. were. I didn't mean that people would die, like you would be killing them. What I meant okay. is if we try to fight on this to make this single payer piece happen in New York state, nothing will change. So the people now who are in trouble stay in trouble, right? The people now who don't have good health care, keep that bad health care. That's what I meant. The wealthy are going to be fine. They already got, they're good. They'll leave the state. They'll do whatever. They'll fly to France, whatever. They'll do what they got to do. But the poor people now are the working poor and the middle class who don't actually, it's more the middle class and the working poor than the actual poor. The, the working the working poor and the middle class they're struggling right now to have decent health care and decent health care insurance if we fight on this and maybe I'm wrong but I'm telling you from my experience in my state this is going nowhere for years and as this goes nowhere for years because you said it the democratic leadership is stopping it yeah because they're all in a pocket of these guys so they're not going anywhere so it's not going to go anywhere so what I have now is a realistic situation to where nothing's going to happen so people are going to struggle for years, maybe decades. I don't know how long, but for surely for years. That's what I meant by having horrible outcomes. And there are 18 million New Yorkers. So there's a lot there's, that makes millions of people who are going to be in trouble. What I'm saying is, is that's why I don't want to do that. I don't see that happening. So okay. I think I have another, another answer, which I think is a better answer. All right, let's do it. And my answer is actuaries right now know about how much money you're going to spend on your either Medicare or Medicaid. They already know, right? They have your little box, whatever. You're a 40-something-year-old, you know, male with a pre-existing condition, blah, blah. Odds are you're going to spend X dollars. And, and say for the example, sake of argument, they, it's $3,000. I'm making that number up just for argument. And they know that you're going to spend about 3000 bucks. 
So what do we do? Literally, I give you a debit card with 3,000 bucks on it. And I say, here's 1,000 bucks, Ben. Here's your money. You can spend it with any doctor you want. Just swipe the card and you can use it. Any doctor you want. Just go do it. But you only get 3,000 bucks on this. After that, you got to go back to regular Medicaid or Medicare. So I'm not keeping you. You still have a safety net. But I'm giving you 3,000 bucks up front. If you want to go to the cool doctors, you can. Any doctor you want, you could go. Or if you go tomorrow, too far, you go back to Medicaid. Up to you. So you have you have a, a safety net. But I'm giving you the choice to make that happen. What do I believe will happen? I think most people will change nothing because most people don't. But there will be early adopters because there always are. Early adopters will go, you know what? Let me go to the cool doctors for a while. And they'll start going. They'll swipe the credit card. And when they swipe a debit card, they'll get the cool stuff that they like. They'll get better care. doesn't matter whether they're poor or old or rich. doesn't matter. If you're on Medicaid or Medicare, you get the cool doctor. When you like that, you'll want more of it. You'll think more about your health care, number one. Number two, the people who now the doctors don't take insurance will go, wait a minute, I can get Medicare Medicaid money without having all this admin? Yeah, no admin. Swipe a card, man. Don't got to have forms, nothing. You don't have to have... 14 people in your office fighting for, for, for getting your money out of Medicare, Medicare. None of that. Swap the card. What I believe will happen is the pricing will begin to come down as they move towards those people to bring them in. I want the culture to move towards direct care. Why? Because in direct care, you are the customer, not the government. When the government is the customer, you are in the way. I don't want you in the way. I want you as the customer because I also want to encourage along with that, I want to encourage companies like Forward. And if you know, have to know what Forward is, but Forward is basically a subscription model, right? You pay 150 bucks a month. It's heavily automated, but you get all the healthcare you want, period. No matter what, no copay, nothing, 150 bucks a month. Now, not everyone can afford 150 bucks a month. I get that. But whatever you could create to begin to make that happen, if I've got my debit card, yeah, I can. I could use my debit card to join one of these. This is like the gym model. They're all about prevention. You agree to join forward. Literally, they check you every month. They don't want you to come in. They want you to be healthy because they get the 150 bucks no matter what. So it would, it, always, it would also encourage that. And you might say, well, Larry, there are some people who couldn't even afford that. You're right. Now, if you're at a point where you have no address, if that's where you are, you go to emergency room anyway. I mean, I get it. You're going to go there anyway. I got it. That maybe we need to have some kind of negative income tax to help them out or UBI style, maybe for that. But that's done. But for the average working poor or middle class person, they can afford the 150. And if, they, if they're on Medicare, Medicare, they can swipe. If not, they can afford 150, far, more, far less than they're paying now, but even better. Now, once you have enough of companies doing that, you can now incentivize those companies. The government can say something like, as an example, you can say, um, hey, I tell you what, um, if you'll take 10% of your population um, as poor as we, the government, decide poor, however the government decides that, maybe it's you know families who are available for school lunch, I'm making that up for sake of argument, then we'll, uh, we will say that you're, you have to pay no state payroll tax while you do that. Now, for a smaller organization, not that big of a deal. But for large organizations, that's a big deal. They'll take in anyone, which means now any working poor person and any middle class person can get the same quality of Medicare as of medical help that anybody else could. That doesn't take five minutes. That's a multi-year plan. I get that, but it's a long-term plan to change how we think about healthcare.
That's so, what I'm going to do. So the so the the three thousand dollar healthcare equivalent to the bridge card, uh, would would that so just just to be clear, uh, that's that's not means tested. That's for everybody. No, 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 no. That that is that is for someone who's on Medicare or Medicaid now. Okay. That's what it's so, for. For someone so, who is right now on Medicare or Medicare right now, right? They would get their card up front. If they so, run out, they still can go back to Medicare, Medicare, right? But they just right. don't get okay. the special so that, that, answer, that, answer, that answers my question. So yes. Uh, so if uh, if that's the uh, that's the case, uh, then it seems to me that uh, I mean, look, I mean, if if you want to you know give people concretely, you know, if this were up for a vote or something, you know, do you, do you give people three thousand dollars? That's sure. But they have a. But if we're if we're thinking about uh, solutions and uh, and and what that looks like and whether that really gets to the nub of the problem with the American healthcare system, then I think when we look at actual uh, bridge cards uh, and and how that's played out politically, uh, when you have a benefit uh, that uh, that is only um, that is is only for people who who meet certain kinds of uh, of means testing requirements. In this case, it would just be whatever it already is uh, for uh, for Medicaid. Yep. Uh, then uh, then what that what that does in practice, I think, is it makes it um, extremely politically vulnerable because most people don't think they'll ever need means tested benefits, even if they really will. They don't think they will, uh, and so it's easier to cut it than it is something. Uh, that's a universal program for everybody that everybody is. I don't understand in. what that means. What do you mean? That, easier? Just, you mean the government easier, will cut easier, it? politically easier to cut because if oh, you have, politically easier, Thank that, you. that if you that's that if you have something that's a universal program like Medicare in Canada or the NHS uh, in uh, in Great Britain, uh, that's something that everybody except maybe people who are so rich that you know that they, you know that they're they'd actually be net better off you know without it. But they have a but. Uh, but everybody more or less um, understands that it benefits them and feel very defensive about that. That's again why Tories, you know, can't have to at least pretend that they basically like the idea of the NHS uh, when they run for office, even if they uh, even if they undermine it uh, in small ways. Whereas, you know, with with means tested benefits, you can just do like you know Bill Clinton in the '90s and run on I'm going to end welfare as we know it, and people yeah. cheer because they think that oh, that's for these moochers who aren't like me. I'm never going to need this. So that's one problem I see with it. The other, uh, the other problem uh, is, uh, is that I think the nature of, um, you know, the nature of, of health insurance, of health costs uh, is that they are extremely unpredictable uh, that, uh, that you don't, you know, you don't know uh, from, uh, from, you know, from month to month necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, and of course, like every other every other commodity, if it continues to be treated as a commodity, you know prices don't just stay static, right? I mean, especially if you're pumping they go you know, down. Well, uh, you know, with I think that's a that's an open empirical question. I mean, if you gave a lot more people a lot no, more no, money, no, 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 no. I'll give you an example of it. There, okay. there is a there is a there is a medical field that's right next to the medical field, which is the 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 non-essential, right? The non-essential fields in medicine. LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic dentistry, body enhancements, things like that. It's right next to it. I mean, they're, they're right next to each other, right? And in every case, in every case, price has gone down, technology has gone up, accessibility has gone up, improved every single time. When I was a kid, LASIK eye surgery used to do it per eye because it was too expensive to do two eyes. That's how expensive it was when I was a kid. Now, anybody gets it. Uh, cosmetic dentistry used to only be for like stars or something, right? Used to be this for, for only like superstars. Now lots of people get cosmetic dentistry, 
right? I think when you when you take it out of the government, in that case, in every way, it's gotten better. Okay, more well, accessibility, well, 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 not well, perfect, well, but more on, accessibility. Because you're like, certainly it's true that there are things that have, you know, gone down in price uh, over over time from when it's new yep. technology, to, you know, et cetera. That's absolutely true. Sure. Uh, but it's, uh, but that's, uh, but it is also true that, you know, that many healthcare costs uh, go up over time. And if you want to say, oh, okay, well, that's all because of government involvement. And if we just, you know, and if, if we have less government involvement, you know, that-, that No, 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 happen. it's insurance company involvement. It's government and insurance company involvement, both of those two. It is both I mean, government certain- and insurance company involvement, both of those combined. It isn't just government's fault. It's okay, also well, insurance company's fault. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I appreciate that, but I mean, like, but, but, but it's also the case that if we look uh, at uh, at countries uh, like Canada or the UK, and you know, compare uh, to the United States uh, in terms of uh, in terms of cost, uh, the uh, uh, the overall amount of money spent by you know everybody uh, in uh, on healthcare uh, is is lower in those places than it is in the U.S. Despite the fact that the uh, that the government uh, the government role is much larger. In fact, the government role is is the role. It's it's the uh, it's the single payer uh, of uh, of doctors, you know, in uh, in the system. And uh, people uh, people would you know seem to uh, seem to get uh, uh, get better care. Uh, certainly, if you look at uh, at comparative uh, you know comparative life expectancy, uh, and you know you can try to blame that on on lifestyle factors. Uh, I think uh, I grew up close enough to uh, the Canadian border. Spent enough time there. I'm pretty skeptical about the lifestyle explanations. But uh, but you have, um, you know, seem like a lot of Canadians. You know, drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of Tim Hortons. But uh, then uh, you can, they do. Uh, you know, and and then but even if you buy that, I mean, you know, you can look at the differences in infant mortality. I think the infant lifestyles uh, are uh, are pretty similar. Uh, and uh, and certainly you can look at the overall figure of mortality amenable to healthcare. Uh, you know, how many people, you know, per thousand or per million are dying from things that, you know, timely health interventions uh, could have uh, could have prevented. Uh, and uh, and that's also uh, uh, and, you know, those figures are also better uh, in uh, in those uh, in those systems. Uh, so so I guess what I'm, I'm really curious about, maybe this takes us back to the larger point you made earlier about David's and Goliath's. Uh, is you know you, you've been kind of framing your your opposition to you know Medicare for all or or the the, the state level equivalent which would really be a public option because you can't really do you know Medicare for all uh, in a single state uh, you've you've been framing that in terms of political viability you know that uh, that you uh, that yeah. well we're just not going to get this soon but uh, but but I, I do want to press but on this, is, this a little this is bit second piece that one and. I also want to change how we look at healthcare. So there were two parts of that, but please keep going. Okay. So, uh, but if, well, okay. So if we, if the, uh, the political, you know, struggle uh, was, was won at some point and, and you, you were convinced that this actually is now a politically viable thing, that this, this could happen or could happen in the short term, uh, would you then say, oh, great, you know, we can, we can have Medicare for all, or would you say, nope, to Goliathy, you know, taxes, force, you know, I don't like yep. that. There are there are two parts to this. The one thing I don't like with the with the Goliathy piece is that there's no other option. In Europe, there actually is. In almost every European country, the wealthy people have su- supplemental insurance, which is another form of insurance they get, not even often in their country, sometimes outside of their country, sometimes in their country, they get another form of insurance. 
They insure themselves some other way so they can go to other countries and get stuff. Medical tourism is a thing for the wealthy. So the wealthy actually get a second tier anyway, even in yeah. European countries that have well, that. They already I mean, do of get course, that. In some cases, it's medical tourism to countries that uh, that have national health care, like Rand Paul famously you know, getting fixed up in Canada. Sometimes, but it's also more like Vietnam, right? It's also places like that too, with who, where what they basically have is it's a privatized hospital. All the people, because of our terrible immigration problem, uh, our terrible immigration policies, we train doctors and send them back to their country when they want to stay here. So because of our bad immigration policies, we actually have, have assisted with uh, medical tourism. So I think, you know, there's that issue. So I wouldn't want it to be where there's no other option. If I believed, and I'm not sure I do believe this, but if I did believe that in reality, uh, a, a single payer system would actually provide better service to everybody, I would still want the option of having privatized insurance if you wanted it. For example, well, unions might want it. Individuals might want it. Entrepreneurs might want it. Doctors might not want to work for that. So I'd still want to have it there. And what I believe is if that's the best way, then people wouldn't go to the private insurance that much. It would be a small part of our of – our, um, it'd be a niche within our country. And if that's the answer, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with the idea of saying, no, the government decides. And here's the reason why. Never have I seen – and I could be wrong, and I'm open to being wrong here. Your chat, by the way, is really a bunch of assholes, but that's okay. <laughs> I expected well, as much. I, I, th I, I, expected think, much. I, I think it's a matter of, uh, uh, I think some of that's a matter of perspective. I would also I expected I, that, but it's fine. I, 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 I would, in any I would case, also, I would also, <laughs> I would also say that, uh, that when I go on libertarian shows, I don't read the chat and there's a reason, but yes, no, but my people are good. They will never be mad at you. My people okay. are, well, be we'll mad. Test my that. people we'll are test good. That in the future, no, no, no. Yes. My people are good. Okay. But in any case, um, I've never known of a monopoly that really services people very well. It just isn't that common. Can this be the exception? Maybe, but it's hard for me to see it as the exception when, again, the medical field next to the medical field, which is the, the non-essential, everything's gotten better. When it comes to the essential, everything's gotten worse. When you add the insurance company and you add the government together, You've got two Goliaths, right? The, the private Goliath and a public Goliath together. And I feel like things are, are just don't work. That's what I would say. And, and I think monopolies tend to not be the right answer. And most people would say monopolies are bad. I would agree. Yeah, well, I think that I think the private monopolies are bad. I think public monopolies mm -hmm. uh, can be uh, can be very good. Uh, you know, without the you know, the problem with uh, with uh, private monopolies uh, is uh, having um the lack of either form of control uh, that you know that uh, ordinary people might otherwise have, either the limited form of control that you can have in the private case through freedom of exit, or the I think much richer form of control you can have through all the Davids uh, collectively uh, collectively owning something and getting to uh, uh, and getting democratic uh, input on it. However, no, uh, however wait, wait. So, so are however, you saying that however, you would want this to however, be a cooperative. So I think that the uh, no, I mean, all I'm saying is if if the state owns something and the state is democratic, then there are then there is some way in which the public has influence over this thing, however indirect, however imperfect. Whereas if it's a private monopoly, it's a completely different situation uh, because, you know, the uh, the CEO of the company is neither up for election nor uh, nor is an appointee of somebody who uh, who is. Uh, who is up for election? But I'd also in say that in our current system, that's not true. In this particular case, 
uh, that the uh, that um, in this particular case, I think there's evidence uh, that uh, that public monopolies lead to better outcome. And in terms of the the point about options, uh, you know, sure, I want people to have options, but I would ask, what are the options that uh, that are most relevant to meaningful freedom in practice? And I'd say that right now, um, you like most people. Uh, are not particularly emotionally invested in whether the uh, parasitical middleman between them and their doctor is Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or Aetna. I don't think most people care about that. Uh, the, in fact, most people, when they're trying to pick between health insurance plans, are hopelessly confused uh, and, and, have trouble, and have trouble seeing the difference. Uh, even yep. professional economists, in some cases, trying to choose healthcare plans, report you know having those uh, those those feelings. But the kinds of decisions that people do care about are things like, do I have to stay in this job I hate? Because if I uh, if I quit, uh, I would lose my health insurance. And I don't know how quickly I, I agree completely. A job, you know, yep. those things seem to be much more important freedom issues than you know whether you get to decide who your health insurance provider is. No, I, I the last part you said I agree with. The first part. I'm not sure I buy that, right? I and mean, if you look at today's world, the way our politics is now, with the left-right paradigm, the Democrat versus Republican right now, we have almost no control. We just basically, everything's gerrymandered to where the red wins the red, the, the blue wins the blue. There's a couple key spots in the middle that can change over here or there. They're the important ones here or there. Um, most of the people who are running things are appointed. And so we don't even vote on them. I see it in my state constantly as commissions on everything where everyone's appointed by the governor and we have no say in them. I mean, even my, my point about the, uh, the DMV that I brought up early on, that's because of a commission. There's, you don't even have a way of, of fighting the commission. Nothing. So I think in theory, maybe you're correct that we could vote, vote the bums out. Yeah, but we don't. We, I mean, what, what is it? 90 some odd percent of all Congress people get reelected, even though the, 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 the approval rate of Congress, like eleven percent or something like that. I mean, yeah, we, we just we, we, we have we don't vote right, people out right right that. now. Right now, we have a uh, we have a system that's formally democratic. It's not that democratic in practice uh, for some of the reasons that you've mentioned, and also a lot of others. I would argue that the uh, the primary reason uh, that it's not very democratic in practice is that concentrations of wealth always everywhere and inevitably lead to concentrations of uh, political power. That sure, if if you if you work at an Amazon warehouse and you try to call your senator's office, you're lucky to speak to an intern. If Bezos calls the same office, he will absolutely get to have a conversation uh, with, the, uh, with the senator. So uh, so if you if you agree well, with then that- Then why I, would you want to do that and, in this environment? And, and by the way, I'd say that I'd say that the shitty half-democratic political system that we have right now is way better uh, than a entirely and openly uh, undemocratic system, which is what you have uh, with uh, with private uh, insurance providers and other uh, and other private companies, uh, which are openly uh, not under uh, under under the control of uh, of the the larger public that they that uh, that you and I uh, it does, oh, okay well that I completely okay uh, we'll completely I mean if if we're assuming that the government doesn't create a monopoly, which in many cases it has, but assuming it doesn't then it does have, the people do have power and they can have power by selecting another option if we've created an environment to where there can be many options, right? Often a government creates an environment to where there's an oligarchy, an, is it an oligopoly? Oligopoly, is that right? Oligopoly mm -hmm. or monopoly, right? That's very common. But if you've got more options, you go someplace else. The problem is in many cases, 
it hasn't worked that way, right? And, and again, I'll bring this up example, forward or health shares or things like that. There's an Oklahoma special surgery hospital. These are minor things that pop up that have other options. People go there. They go out of their way to go there and they have another option. They are speaking. You're seeing it happen now with, with third parties, right? People are leaving the Democrat Republican and looking for third parties, but they're trying to, but the system makes it to where you have to go left or right. But you do see when there is an, something viable out there, the early adopters go there. And when the early adopters go, wait a minute, this thing worked. iPhone, insert I mean, thing here. People I mean, then follow. The third, the third party example is probably not great since uh, uh, given given that, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you uh, you know very well uh, from uh, from from your experience. I mean, this is um, it's I don't, a government I don't, run. It's a government run duopoly. Okay, okay, but the uh, but in so th so I think there there are really two things here. So one of them is whether uh, whether freedom of exit, which is what you're talking about, right? That if you don't have voice, you can at least have exit. You can go. You know, you sure. can take your okay. take your business. You can take your business elsewhere. Uh, whether uh, whether that uh, is as uh, as meaningful a uh, a level of uh, of control uh, over uh, over something uh, as actually um, you know collectively owning it and getting to vote for uh, you know for the people uh, the people who uh, who run it. Uh, I would argue that certainly in terms of our lives as well, workers, you, you weren't people... talking. You weren't talking co-op. You were talking about people voting for a governor or voting for a an, a, an elected representative. Yeah, getting getting right? getting getting to vote for a governor who appoints something is better than uh, having uh, having that person be somebody you don't get to vote for at all, and you also don't get to vote for the person who appoints it. Getting to vote for them directly is even better. Uh, you know, there are these things come in degrees. Uh, but uh, but I, I would certainly uh, certainly I, rather I have disagree. you know important I, I, services uh, you know be in the hands of people right. that had some kind of democratic. I'm going to give you on. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give okay. you an example. Okay. Give an example. Okay. And the example is cable companies, right? Cable companies like the Time Warners and the Comcasts of the world, right? Basically, the government gave them monopolies in their local areas, right? So they basically created a cartel system. They'll only be Comcast here, or they'll only will be whatever here, Verizon here, whatever. They basically created a cartel system. And if you ask anybody what the service was, it was garbage. Now we voted for those people, and we could have told them stop it. We could have voted for it was the government. This was a government plan, a government scheme. We didn't. You know who stopped it? Satellite did, and Netflix, because we took the choice. We said, I'm not going to take this. I'm going to go to Netflix, or I'm going to go to Hulu. And now they're struggling. I'm going to go to Dish or Direct TV or whatever. Literally what I talked about just happened. There was, you were stuck with a cable company. That's what you got. And if it sucked, oh well. Well, Larry, I could vote for my governor or my local city council. So, so, no, but, you couldn't. But, Nothing but the, was going to change. But the example you're given is not of uh, of an actual public service. Uh, it's uh, it's of a government establishing a- uh, a, a monopoly. Private, a private, private monopoly is the uh, is the key word here. Which I think is very, very different. But I, but I am really intrigued by something you said. I don't know. I think maybe five minutes ago, which uh, which is that you, you agreed with the point that concentrated wealth uh, leads to concentrated political influence. Yep. So one would think that, given fact. that, if you want distributed political influence, uh, you are going to have to uh, redistribute wealth, but I'm guessing that's not your view. I mean, what, what what's the? Uh... I said it was. I literally did say it was. I want okay. more and more Davids. I want more. I want an environment that does not encourage monopolies 
and that encourages little guys. Let me give you an example of one of my policies, all right? I'm not talking theory. I'm talking actual policies. One of my policies was in New York State was to allow that if you were going to be the copies of Wyoming law, if you want to be a small business owner in New York State and you agree that you will sell only within New York State and no place outside of New York State, and you agree to that, you are immune from all federal regulatory bodies. Only difference is you must be transparent and you must post, we do not follow federal guidelines. That's it. Now, what does that do? Is that magic? It isn't magic. But does it help the little guy? Yeah, it does. Because if you go to most small places, most most towns around, around the, the country, most of the businesses are franchises, right? Most of them are actually big business, somehow franchising out to, to other people. Most of the owners aren't part of the communities. Most of the managers even aren't always, depends on where you're going, but often managers aren't even doing that. So that's an idea to get them to do that, but I'm not done. Also giving them an option that if you hire someone, for example, if you hire an ex-con, if you hire someone with a, with, with, a, with, a, with a record, you know what? You do that. If you're a small business, we're going to give you extra protection against lawsuits, which you know is going to happen, and no payroll tax for that person for two years. Now, people say, well, Larry, then these new businesses will just hire people for two years and then get rid of them. Good. You're training my prison population. Thank you for that. That's awesome. We're giving them a second chance at life, and they're moving forward. Would you you do that, and all of a sudden, now the little guy has a better chance of survival. You need like four, five, six, eight rules and regulations like that to give them any shot. But that's the kinds of things I'm talking about. Why not just uh, why not just ban the box on employment applications? I would love that. I okay. would love that. All right, that's good. So so we My mother was there. a convicted felon. I know yeah. that well. I had her lie. In fact, the reason why I became an entrepreneur, true story. I became an entrepreneur because I was so tired of my mom being a hostage at any job she had because she was a hostage. She mm. couldn't say anything because if she lost that job, there wasn't another one out there for her. There was no nothing out there for her. So you know what we did? We bought a truck and we started a trucking business. And I ran that trucking business for two years. My mom ran that business until she retired. And when she retired, New York State's so oppressive, she had to move to South Carolina to retire. But it's fine. She still ran that business until she was retired. She was clean for 20 years. And she was a convicted felon who ran a business. Actually, I ran the business, but I put it on her name because I want to make sure that if she's the boss, nobody can fire her. So I get the ownership piece, brother. You and I are simpatico on that, 100%. All I'm saying is, I want people to grow versus me giving. So, 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 so this is uh, interesting. Since we're nearing the end of our time together, I want to go back to one thing that you said, say something about it, and then I'll let you have the last word you know, at the end of the discussion. But uh, you, uh, you, know, you said that you want to, uh, to help uh, the little guy, and one of your, one yes. of your first, first examples of that was about uh, exempting uh, making it possible to exempt businesses that only do business, you know, in a state uh, from uh, from federal uh, regulations, uh, and then actually also, you know, just now, you know, talking about the, uh, you know, about uh, convicted felons, uh, you know, you you were talking again about you know small small business ownership, but uh, in you know the little guy in question in that first example uh, is the small business owner, maybe the relatively small business owner, or oh, the farmer, uh, but the uh, yeah, sure. I mean, same same principle, you know. The yep. uh, but um, uh, but of course uh, that that might help. Yeah, that might help the uh, that um, you know that small business owner. You know, by by giving them a, a competitive advantage. One sure. person that's definitely not going to help is the person 
who works for the small business owner who now their boss is exempted from regulations that might make them pay them more money. It might make them uh, have to uh, have to give them breaks. It might make them have to have certain health and safety protections, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, my, and this, I think, gets down to a very fundamental difference. It's the last thing you know, I'll say before throwing over to you for the last part is that I think the, the worldview, right? Like, like you said, we're simpatico when you know, we're thinking that, like, that, that ownership is really important. Uh, but, uh, but in like most people uh, in a, you know, traditionally structured, you know, business, you know, business most people are never going to be um, small business owners, just structurally, right? You know, they have, you know, you are going to have more people, uh, I think, even in a society where, you know, where, where ownership uh, was somehow, um, and again, I, I'm very skeptical about the road here, but, you know, was somehow vastly more distributed. So, uh, so you, you didn't have, you know, the giant businesses that you have right now, you had, you know, you, the, the average size of business was much smaller, et cetera. All of those things could be true. And it would remain true that most people were working for, uh, for those uh, those those businesses, I mean, you you can't have I think a modern complex society where every person or even really a majority of people uh, are uh, are owning their own little business of one person. Uh, so it seems like the level of little guys you're talking about here is not the littlest guys uh, who are the uh, the people. No, I who, I would, who are actually I would who are actually wage laborers. No, no, I, I I'm. I'm not against the wage labored person. I, maybe I wasn't clear on that. To fix the ills of our nation or even an individual state, there are, I mean, dozens of policies that have to be changed and adjusted, right? I mean, tons of them, right? Um, no, no worry, Joshua. I love you, brother. It's all good. It's all good. Um, I get yelled at all the time. <laughs> totally fine. All the time. Um, I, 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 the things I brought up were to get you to see conceptually where I am, that I hope you and your audience see that I am trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do, meaning the same outcome. I want a better outcome for everybody, particularly the little guy. So are there other things we should do? Of course, remember my Medicaid, Medicare plan was giving the poor, the, the most poorest people an opportunity to get to, to the best doctors and to change the environment for the best doctors to take the poorest people. I'm just going a different way. I hope your audience sees that I am arguing good faith and I do want the best for everybody. Now, does do we disagree on how to get there? Eh, probably, it's, it's obvious we do. But without question, you see that I'm trying to move us all forward. And I think ownership as a concept, and let me go one step further if I could. I also have ownership in the idea of public housing. I think we can use public housing to get people to have more of an ownership mindset. Right now, we could easily have a situation to where everyone who's in public housing has an opportunity to buy their own home. Some people won't want to, but some people will. And as always, early adopters will jump on board and hopefully others will grab that. I want people to feel like they have ownership. I grew up in a poor neighborhood. I grew up in the South Bronx in the 70s in New York City. That's not a good neighborhood. Still today, it isn't great, but was it was far worse in the 70s. And what I saw, which was difficult, was when I was a kid, a lot of people did a lot of things to make money on their own. Girls would braid hair on the stoop to make money. Cabs wouldn't come to my neighborhood. So we had gypsy cabs. The guy would paint one side of his door, one door, a different color. 
we know he was uh, a gypsy. We know he was a gypsy cab. And people would make money. Now we have Uber. We didn't have Uber back then. Right? Now we have to have a license in New York City to braid hair. It's $20,000 to get the, 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 the license if you have to go through all the schooling to braid hair. So we stop this without question. We stop this when I want people to have ownership of their lives. And I'll go one step further if I could. There are too many people in this world who have lost hope. I'm sure you would agree with that. There are too many who've lost hope. So they act self-destructively or they don't care or they surrender. I would like people to have some real hope. Hope of owning whatever life they have left and hope of being better in their life. I saw it with my mother. I saw it myself. I see it all the time. I want people to have some more hope. If you have hope, you tend to try to do better and be better. I focus often on happiness, right? And I know it sounds trite and sounds silly. I'm literally writing a book on happiness. That's how much I care. I think happy people do great things. Happy people are better. Government cannot give you happiness. What government might be able to do is give you a living to survive. That's possible. That's possible. I'm not against a negative income tax, UBI type scheme, something like that. That would. I'm not against that type of thing. I would rather it not go through taxation, right? I think we can find other ways to pay for that. I believe that completely. But we can do something like that. But that will make you happy. That'll just mean you won't starve, which is a good thing. I don't want people starving. Well, but I, I also want I've, people to strive for things. Sure. I mean, I've, I've, always, uh, I've always liked... Uh, Corey Robin has a line where he quotes Freud on the purpose of, uh, of, of psychoanalysis is to reduce hysterical misery to ordinary unhappiness. And I think, I think something uh, comparable uh, is, uh, is, is true politically that we can avoid certain uh, avoidable causes of, uh, of unhappiness. Uh, we, we, we deeply disagree about, uh, about how to do that, you know, whether, whether that uh, lies through, you know, collective ownership, taking, you know, some of the necessities of life outside of the market, et cetera. Uh, but I certainly don't doubt your, uh, your, your, uh, you know, your good faith. And I appreciate your, uh, your coming on the show, uh, to, uh, to, to discuss this, uh, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, um, can I ask one question before we go? Sure. Do you have to run right now or can, or can we go a little bit longer? Uh, yeah, we can do like two minutes. What's up? All right. Um, I just have, it's just curious how you feel. Do you see an individual as either being a capitalist or a worker or do you see shades? I know some people who believe in you know the value of socialism are very strict on how they put those two people and think there's only two classes of people. And I guess why I brought this up is the, the idea of people who I've worked with in the past. Someone who is say a worker, but they work in a private equity fund or a hedge fund or something like that. So they're getting paid a salary but they get paid massive bonus based upon the amount of money that they put in or the return they get on investment. Their, their action is capitalistic. However, they are a salaried employee. And while they're not yelled at every day or told to come in at seven, they have very harsh numbers they have to make and certain percentage they have to make for them to get their bonus. Do you see that person as a worker, as a capitalist, as both? Neither. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, uh, I think that, uh, there are clear cases, and I think there are muddy cases. I think that um, you know Eric Olin Wright is a Marxist sociologist uh, who who has a whole categorization scheme that has like a couple of other social layers, you know, uh, besides uh, besides the two. And I think that in in individual cases, sure, you can have gray areas. Uh, I think that you can have people who, you know, because parts of their, um, you know, I, I think in. Uh, in some ways, I'm in a gray area because because uh, because part of my income comes from uh, in a context in which 
I guess I'm technically a small business owner, which would be this show. And part of it comes from stuff that people pay me. Uh, and I think, I think in individual cases, it could be that there's like a very clear, like, okay, clearly the bulk of, of your income, this is what your predominant interest is, uh, is, is as a, as a worker in some cases as a, as a capitalist, in some cases, maybe as something intermediary or it's just a weird gray area. But I think that that's like, I think that that's true of most interesting and important concepts that you're going to have clear cases and you're going to have gray area cases and the, the gray areas don't, the existence of the gray areas doesn't invalidate the existence of the clear cases. And I guess the last piece I'll ask, thank you for that. That's clear for me. The last piece I'll ask is what every, everything I've said requires in my perfect case, no extra force, hopefully no force at all, but no extra force and, and no extra taxation. I feel like what you want would include both. Have I misunderstood you? I remember you mentioned once about mutinies and pirates and such. Oh, yeah. You, and watched, you watched my debate with David Friedman, sure. Was it David uh, Friedman? Was that what it was? I don't remember. Someone, I remember I saw the context in which I, I used So that I didn't know if that was joking or if that was sure. real. That's what I was asking. Uh, sure. I mean, I think that the, I think that if you're, um, I mean, I think if you're conscripted to, uh, to be on a uh, 18th century uh, pirate ship, uh, or, or, you know, you, even people who maybe voluntarily did it out of desperation by the time you're there, you know, you're, you're in a pretty uh, brutal situation. Uh, I'm pretty sympathetic to them doing it. Uh, I, I think that we could have a much more peaceful and democratic, uh, route, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, systemic change, uh, now. Uh, but I think that, uh, I, so you're I, not for us mutinying now. So, so, uh, I think it depends what you mean. I think that'd be a much larger situation, but I think the only context in which, um, you know, I'm really in favor of uh, of of the uh, the use of violence. Would be cases like, um, you know, the analogy would be like uh, Chile, 1973. Uh, you know, uh, Salvador Allende sure. is elected on a democratic socialist platform, and uh, Henry Kissinger and the local generals and you know and everybody, uh, you know, violently oust him. I, I I certainly would have been in favor of uh, of the Chileans, you know, violently uh, stopping that, you know, from uh, from happening. Uh, but uh, but in general, yeah, you know, no violence is better than than violence. I think the democratic, you know, legitimacy is the most important thing. But on the you know the two things you asked me before the pirate ship part were about force and about mm -hmm. taxation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, that taxation, uh, even higher levels, you know, I think that I think that increasing. Uh, taxation uh, when it's uh, it's redistributive uh, when it it, it gets uh, you know it takes from uh, from from you know good private Goliaths uh, to uh, uh, to give uh, to to give to David's is a positive and on force uh, which uh, is is where you know when I when I started asking you about the legitimate role of the state at at the beginning you know you kind of indicated well I'm a pragmatic libertarian you know I'm I'm, I'm not you know I, I don't have the sort of absolutist views that some activists you know might might have uh you know so we we sort of went away from that more philosophical level mm -hmm. of discussion uh if we were going to maybe in a future discussion uh talk uh talk about that uh then I think we'd also have big disagreements about there with you know with what counts as 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 force you know because mm. cuz I I think even having uh, private property. Uh, there's, there's, there's force baked right into that, you know, that they, sure. uh, that, uh, that this is something that you're able to exclude others from. And I think oftentimes when philosophical libertarians say, oh, I don't like force, there's this kind of trick where they're, uh, they're saying sort of excluding that from counting as, as, as force, you know, only, 
you know, only redistribution, you know, only uh, redistribution against the will of current owners uh, counts as force, whereas just forcibly enforcing uh, current property arrangements doesn't count as force. And that's where I think we'd have a big disagreement if we got into that discussion in the future, you know, when you I'm come back. Sure. Or, or I'm not sure. I'm not sure we disagree because my, my piece here would be that I just don't want to have any policies that add force, right? That's really what I'm talking. I don't want to have any policy. I want to try to get to where I want to go. I'm okay if I go there slower, as long as I change culture and people want to go there. That's really my number one thing. I want to create a world to where people want to go there. That's my issue. I mean, I mean if decreasing force means that, um, you know, means that we live in a society uh, where, um, you know, less, um, state violence is happening or maybe even less mm -hmm. violence of any kind is happening uh certainly where fewer people are are, are imprisoned uh then then yes I, I think that you know that we should we should want a society with less force uh than uh, than we have right now uh but I, I would say that that doesn't necessarily travel along the axis of um you know the more sort of market friendly and libertarian you know the uh, the policies are the less uh, the less force you have in the society overall I mean I'd compare a, the welfare states, and B, the prison populations of Norway and the United States, for example. And, you know, we could argue about causality, but I think at the very least, that shows that those two can come apart. They have a much better system, for sure. All right. Well, uh, we could easily keep doing this for, for hours, but, uh, but... I will but let you are, run, brother. We are I appreciate your time completely. Thank you so much, my friend. Let's talk again. Absolutely. Thanks, Larry. All right. Uh, so that was uh, Larry Sharp, uh, who was the uh, Libertarian candidate for, uh, for governor of New York uh, in uh, 2018, uh, which, uh, which is a, a fun discussion. I should, by the way, say to Kevin in the chat uh, that, uh, that he was saying a few times, why is nobody talking about regulatory capture? I think we did talk about regulatory capture. We didn't use the phrase, but we were certainly talking about the concept, uh, you know, talking uh, in... Uh, on, on both sides, I, I think, uh, you know, my, my view, of course, being that uh, to, uh, to have um, that, uh, that the, the solution to, you know, to, to regulatory capture uh, isn't, uh, isn't to uh, eliminate regulation, it's to expropriate the, uh, the captures. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, we are going to go to post now. Uh, so with, uh, for, uh, for patrons, uh, the, uh, the link is in the description. I think we're having a little trouble with that earlier, by the way, the Patreon link, but I think it's been fixed. In any case, it's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. So uh, we're going to go, um, of course, obviously, uh, if you if you like the work we're doing here, uh, please please do support us. Uh, that, uh, you know, you get the post game every Monday night. You get a patron episode uh, every week uh, that, uh, that drops on Thursdays. Uh, you know, so extra episode every week, uh, you get the discord, uh, you get the discord movie nights, the discord office hours, but most importantly, it's, it's, it's not a, you know, service. It's, it's solidarity. You know, if you, if you like the work that we're doing here, if you want us to pay kale more money, uh, join, uh, join the, uh, the, uh, the Patreon. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, in any case, um, have, um, but in the uh, in the post game, uh, we are going to uh, to be talking a little. Well, first, uh, Kale's going to uh, tell us uh, about a book you read. Uh, we're uh, we're going to. Uh, it's a big uh, accomplishment, people. So yeah, he read a book. Like 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 he didn't just skim it. He didn't just look at the pictures. He 
you read I mean, you read it right yeah no i i got i got to the end okay awesome so uh so, so we're going to celebrate Kale's accomplishment and we'll hear about the content of the book uh we are going to uh be revisiting a uh, brief debate that I uh, that I had with uh, with Gavin McGinnis at the uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we're also going to be joined uh, at a certain point by uh, Cole James Cash, a podcaster, musician, and uh, the uh, the source of the intro and outro music uh, for uh, for this uh, for this show. Uh, so uh, lots of uh, lots of stuff uh, going on in the post game. I should say on Wednesday, uh, friend of the show Daniel Bestner and I are going to uh, be having a bit of a struggle session, not calling it a debate, but, you know, we can all, all uh, you know, sip, uh, sip bourbon and, and have uh, have a discussion uh, about January 6th and the article that Danny and I wrote about the 6th uh, for uh, for Jacobin and the uh, the criticisms they had of that on the, uh, the Know Your Enemy uh, podcast. Uh, so uh, that's coming up on uh, Wednesday uh, at, uh, at 8 p.m., um, and, uh, on, uh, on, on Friday, of course, uh, we have, uh, philosophy Friday on the, uh, the night, uh, debate breakdown. So, uh, Kale, anything else you want to plug before we go? Anything coming up on Jacobin? Yeah. I, uh, if you don't know, I, I'm the producer for Jacobin, uh, in addition to the producer for give them an argument at the moment. Uh, and, um, this week on Jacobin show, we have Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels, uh there's some other little fun things that are going to happen but that's the that's the you know the main event that's on the um that's what we're billing um and uh we're actually and then for weekends we're actually going to have vivek chibber on uh because vivek nice. is writing a bunch of articles right now and so we gotta we gotta talk about them gotta talk about good articles um so it really like i'm downplaying a little bit like it we're actually kind of like a, a pretty nice stacked week uh and um, we're moving to a slightly new model soon. So keep your eyes. I accidentally leaked a, the video earlier, but it's private. It'll come back up. Slightly new model soon in the future for, for Jacobin Video. Uh, it helps us out. We think you'll be down with it, and uh, there won't be much of an ask. But a um, lot more Jacobin Video stuff coming up uh, in, the, in general. But um, this is a good week if, if you're into, you know, anti-essentialism, uh, anti-kind of uh, disparitarianism um, <laughs> on the Adolf Walter side. And then, you know, you want some like you, you just want that nice, good kick of like, yeah, why is it that the left is disconnected from the working class? Ooh, we got the good we got the good guy to, to tell you that one. We got we got the Mr. Marxism himself to. uh to go into you know why why the working class and why we got to be reconnected with them why we were disconnected why we got to be reconnected um so i don't know jacobin shit it's capitalism is bad and uh marx is you know underappreciated that's that's kind of our motto <laughs> all right lots of good jacobin shit coming up lots of good gta shit coming up uh so uh check uh check all of that out uh if uh, if you're a patron uh, you should already have the the link to the post games been posted uh, on the, uh, the Patreon a few minutes ago, and I will see people there in just a minute. Left is best. Left is best. <laughs>